Hi, everyone. I'm Megan Berg. And I'm Dr. Jeanette Benegas. And we are here to fix SLP. We are discussing the biggest challenges that are currently holding back the field of speech-language pathology. We present the issues with facts and invite you to be part of joining our movement to make things better, one conversation at a time. Let's fix SLP. Hey, Megan, what just happened? I don't know. Welcome back from your trip. Feel like it's been a whirlwind. It it's been something. I'm <laughs> I'm I I can't believe what is happening. It makes me kind of sad that it's happening because of the topic. Um, you know, we're all here because we like what we do, I think. Most of us do, and we all care a lot and I it's unfortunate that this is happening, but it's also a great thing. So yeah, what happened while I was gone? Well, so we are up to 5,000 Instagram followers and we got that in 18 days. So I think that speaks more to the fact that this is a conversation that SLPs have been having, wanting to have for a long time. And we were just the ones to provide the space. So we're really grateful for everybody who's followed along and asked questions and written in comments. And even if you disagree with us, we really appreciate you being here and being part of the conversation. Uh, there is a ASHA board of directors uh, board meeting taking place next Wednesday through Friday. So Dr. Treasure Williams-Wood, who is the member at large, will be talking about this issue on our behalf. And then we're also asking for everybody to send in a letter to the board of directors. Um, there's a 500 word limit, but that letter just helps the board understand what members and non-members are feeling about this topic of the CCC. Um, I know a lot of people are feeling like, why aren't we taking legal action? Why are we like doing something dumb like writing letters that's not actually going to do anything? And just circling back to like the intention of this is to start out by trying to have the conversation and trying to be open and transparent and really trying to en masse communicate to ASHA how like what the real world experience is like for SLPs right now. Because the people running or people on the board of directors and the people who are the staff at ASHA largely are not practicing SLPs. So they're not as in touch with what's going on in the field right now. Yeah. Um, I just want to give a live update. We are like 25 shy of 5,500 followers on <laughs> Instagram. That has changed since last night, that number. Um, and I also want to give a shout out to our Facebookers because there's about 700 there. And while there are a few people who are on both platforms, I think largely the people following along on Facebook are their own group of people. Um, so that has happened in about five days, which is pretty cool. I just realized I have um, the wrong outline open. So, so maybe oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and I was like, why does this say Brooke? Brooke was while I was gone. <laughs> Give me a minute. <laughs> All right. Then we'll get literally on the same page. But yeah, okay. we're going to talk about so many things on this episode. I think we both have enough to say that we could fill five hours, but we're going to try to keep it to an hour. 
and just cram a bunch of thoughts in and ideas. What we're really going to talk about today is competency and what that means and how we measure that. And when we're talking about the certificate of clinical competency, like what does that even mean? How are we defining that? And I think we both bring a really unique set of perspectives here today because you're a professor, you're in that world of academia, you understand it in a way that I don't at all. And I'm somebody who gets really frustrated with that world because I feel like um, there's a lot of old school mentality. There's a lot of ivory tower that goes on. Like you could not pay me to get a PhD. Like I have zero interest in being a part of that world. Like I'm much more interested in being a business owner because I feel like things move faster. Um, There's more room for innovation and creativity. You can push the envelope a lot more and you're rewarded for that. Whereas in academia, you're kind of punished for that in a lot of ways. So um, when we're living and swimming in a world where the academic culture is so heavily influencing the rules and standards of our profession and currently working SLPs have pretty much zero power or voice. Uh, Like we don't even get a seat at the table really anywhere at ASHA. The only way that we can make our voices heard is through these letters to the board of directors. So Jeanette, let's start by you telling us about your experience as a professor. What are some of the biggest challenges? Um, talk to me about like what goes through your brain when SLPs say that grad school programs don't prepare them for entry-level positions. This could be the whole hour. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to clarify too, just um, if people, if this is their first time listening, I am a clinician first. Um, I own my own mobile fees company. I work PRN, both in skilled nursing facilities and at an acute care hospital. I work as a clinician every single week. I have never stopped doing that. It was very important to me when um, somebody did pay me to get a PhD, by the way, but I was in my 20s. I was single. I was living with my mom and my dad and the invitation came my way and it seemed stupid to say, no. So I said yes. And it has opened a lot of doors. Um, But I insisted that my research be clinically relevant. And to make that happen, I had to work all the way through my program. When I was collecting dissertation data between that and working, I was doing 70 hours a week in nursing homes. So, um, you know, some people on my committee, I actually, we talk about bullying in academia. Somebody on my committee said, why are you doing this to yourself? Why are you working so much? This won't even matter after you graduate. Um, excuse me, sure, sir, shut up. It's absolutely <laughs> going to matter. So just to make that clear, um, I am, so I feel like sometimes I am the black sheep in academia. I don't I like to like climb the steps of the ivory tower sometimes and see what it looks like at the top, but I'm definitely (laughs) not like keeping a room there. So there's that. But um, my, one of my two areas of specialization is dysphagia. And I think this is an area where um, students are often underprepared. I think that is for a lot of reasons. It's interesting because we talk about the competencies that the CAA has laid out for academia to follow. 
And And I'm just going to interrupt for people listening. The CAA is the Council for Academic Accreditation. It's, It's an entity of ASHA and they define all of the standards that grad schools have to meet. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yes, that's okay. We programs are designed based on these standards, but the standards allow a lot of room for us to interpret those however they want. And one of one of the things that I see is there are still many universities that don't have standalone dysphagia classes. Sometimes it's like a quick eight-week course over the summer. Sometimes it's split with motor speech or some other type of disorder. So it's like, again, an eight-week thing. That's a problem because if you take a look at the standards, dysphagia has one of the highest number of competencies required by the CAA, and it is the class that is often least taught. And also there's not a ton of us that are really in dysphagia every day who are actually experts in the field. And I have so many colleagues who are and who are doing their best and and we're trying to move the needle. But the way academia works is full-time faculty teaches first. And if there's no one on on the full-time faculty to teach, you know, that is an expert, it doesn't mean you're going to bring an expert in. So if there are five faculty and there are 15 classes that have to be taught, everybody takes three and you figure out who's best qualified for what topic. And that's not great, but that's not an ASHA problem. That's not a CAA problem. That's an institutional issue that has to do with money and politics and things that we're not necessarily going to change as part of this movement today. But it's a it's a problem that we just need to put out there. For example, I teach oral rehab to undergrads. Do I have any business teaching oral rehab to undergrads? Probably not. And you know what? They see right through it. My student reviews are lower, right? But my dysphagia, man, I I get fours. That's the highest, you know, so there's that. But one of the problems is that those of us who are really trying to to um, do better, to to make it so students are actually prepared, at least in the areas that we're teaching, we have challenging, rigorous classes. I know I've heard our colleague Ianessa Humbert say when she taught, she used to tell her students, not everyone's going to get an A in this class. I do the same thing. Not everyone's going to get an A in my class, but I'll tell you what, you're all going to be prepared. I do an oral competency check at the end of my class. Um, It is very rigorous, but I I tell them, you don't know anything today. None of you have had any history in dysphagia. I am going to hold your hand and walk you down a path that might get bumpy at times. You might get frustrated. You might fall. You might not get the A. But at at the end of this, you're going to be able to look at a medical chart, at a history and physical, and read it and make predictions about what you might see. You're going to be able to interpret a modified barium swallow study. You're going to be able to verbally tell me what treatments are and are not appropriate for this case. And you're going to be able to communicate all of that to me professionally and in layman's terms, like you were talking to the family at the end. That's my oral competency check. Shout out to my colleague, Pam Smith, who I kind of modeled it from. So, you know, that is hard. That that makes for a hard class. Let me tell you over the last seven years, how much struggle I have gone through both with students and with colleagues who have asked me to make my class easier because students complain, 
who have given me really crappy reviews because I'm too hard. Um, I It's frustrating because students complain when they get out in the field that they're not prepared. But those of us who are actually trying to prepare them in a way that we know they need to be prepared, we get the most flack. We're not watering things down. We're not making it easier. We're holding them to a standard. We're keeping the bar high. And we're the ones who get crapped on the most. And I I ask like, yeah. Do you find that it's the people who are not necessarily interested in getting a job that requires dysphagia knowledge or experience that are the most frustrated with your course? Potentially. Um, But I do remind them that there are students who want to be medical SLPs in my class and they have to take the child language classes too. So there's that. But also dysphagia is across the lifespan. If you follow the work of almost Dr. Kristen West right now, she's, she just handed in her dissertation. Um, She's doing pediatric feeding disorders in the schools. Like her work is amazing that's coming, that's growing. You know, this dysphagia is not an adult only thing. We've got NICUs, we've got kids with feeding disorders. It's, it's a lifespan issue. So even if they don't want to be a medical SLP, they're getting NICU to death in my class. I, I cover it all. I bring in the experts for the things I can't teach, but they're getting it all. And I I've had some really sad conversations with colleagues Um, That if I dropped these names now, you would all know these names that teach adjunct at other schools and go through the same kind of stuff that I have experienced and who have who have considered quitting because it's low pay. It's not worth the mental stress that it puts on you because we care so much about preparing students. And honestly, honestly, like a thirty three hundred dollars a semester, like for a 16 credit hour class or a 16 week, three credit hour class. Like I've done a lot of studying on adjunct pay. You know, you're getting a thousand, eleven, twelve hundred dollars per credit hour. That's before taxes. And, uh, you know, wow. so that little pay for these experts in our field who are trying to do things better, who get this crap from program directors and chairs and students, it's, it's really not worth it sometimes. And so that's what we experience. And and not everyone is a crappy professor. I think we're all, we're all in this situation where we have to do what the CAA says. We have to follow the policies that the university has laid out. Like our department desperately needs a full-time pediatric faculty member, and that will come. But right now we can't get it approved because we're in a state of you know, fiscal emergency or something like that. Yeah. And how many uh, SLP PhDs are there? I think the last time I looked, there are approximately 4,000, but then you have to start whittling that down. So how many of those people are retired? Probably a good Mm -hmm. half of them. How many of them don't work in the field at all? How many of them only research, like they're working at research hospitals or research institutions where they don't teach and they don't practice, they're only in a lab a lot. And so you take the thousand or 2000 of us that are left and expand that over the lifespan and try to stick us into these programs that that desperately need people like like me. Um, you can't you can't fill every need. It's impossible. And isn't there a requirement where there's a certain percentage that have to be PhDs? 
Yes. So um, the CAA recognizes the PhD and the EDD as a terminal degree. So I don't actually know what the percentage is. And it might just say that the majority of classes have to be taught by someone with a terminal degree. I don't know. And I'm sorry that I don't know that. Um, it's not something that I've ever been responsible for. So I, um, but I know there's either a percentage or there's wording or something that stipulates the PhD has to, or the terminal degree has to be what's teaching most of the classes. The SLPD is not recognized as a terminal degree. So someone with an SLPD would not be paid more or would not, I mean, if I was, if I was in charge of a hiring committee and I had three people with master's degrees and I had someone with an SLPD and they all had the same years of experience and they were all equally qualified for the job, personally, I might choose the SLPD because there's some more extra work in academia there. But in terms of what the CAA recognizes as the as the person who needs to teach, the SLPD is not included in that. So, okay. So again, from my perspective as a business owner, I see degrees as products, which probably a lot of people would disagree with. But SLPs are paying tens of thousands of dollars for these degrees. And from my perspective, there's not an accountability system or a feedback loop that's going on to compare the CAA standards to real life, actual job requirement right. standards. Yeah. So part of me is always like, why, like, how can we do this better? And again, like that comes back to as a business owner, you constantly have to take feedback and you constantly have to reiterate and fold that feedback into what you're doing. So like, is it possible? Is there a world where there's sort of a pool of really high quality expert educators who have very specialized knowledge in like oral rehab or AAC and they have just rock star classes like you know, I'm sure they'll still get a mix of reviews, but like overall, very high quality people walk away with competencies. Could there be a situation where there's like a national pool of those classes that the CAA operates and a university that's struggling to find somebody to teach oral rehab or whatever could pay a fee to have access to that course for their students? And that fee, like when you pool enough of those fees together, the CAA has enough money to pay that person very well and provide a team of people to take in questions and mentor and like individualize support for students. Like, is that a possibility? Because I feel like part of the ripoff for students right now is like, it's just luck of the draw. Like if you happen to go to a grad school with someone like you, you're going to get a good dysphagia education. If you happen to go to a grad school where they're really struggling to find an adjunct person or they just don't have the human power to like adequately cover those topics, they're just out of luck. And there's no recourse. There's no way to know that when you apply to a school or accept it. So like, can we change the model for universities and how these courses are covered? I think we could. I, I think that... A job like that, the, the the department or the university would be potentially paying out a fee like um, like a consultant type fee. 
The problem is, is if there's only three faculty members or four faculty members and there's 12 courses to be offered and you bring in a consultant for one of those classes, how are you fulfilling the full-time job of the person who would have taken the class that the consultant is now teaching? And also the the CAA does have um, some language and some rules about how much can be taught online in a residential program. So, and this I'm very familiar with because I've done adjunct in residential programs as a, um, a synchronous professor. So I've taught in New York and Indiana online to students who were sitting in the classroom. And there's there's a problem there that if they're doing things like that and they're they're bringing in consultants, I'm assuming a course like this would be taught online. Um, Because I don't think any expert or consultant is going to move somewhere for a 16-week run to teach a class. The CAA would also need to be changing their requirement about how much can be taught online. I think a better solution, and there's even problems with this, and I'll give an example, is having a set curriculum that people like me could tap into. So, for example, I own a mobile fees company. I have a ton of fees videos that I can use to teach in my classroom with. I do PRN at an acute care center where we administer modified barium swallow studies, but I'm not at liberty to take those videos to use in my classroom. So I don't have access to high quality videos to teach modified barium swallow studies in my course. But as part of competencies, we really should be teaching that. So in the past, my students have had to pay for a product to learn how to do that, 25 to 30 hours of training. It's a high quality product. The videos are great, but that's one more cost that we're putting on our students. Thankfully, I work at an amazing university right now. Um, Shout out to Teal College. We pay for that kind of stuff for our students. So our students are getting that, but I've taught this course at a lot of places, and this is the first place that has covered the cost. So if we were paying into some kind of curriculum, that provided those materials for people like me to use to teach. You know, this this is the textbook. Here are the shells of the lectures. Here's a lab for every week. You know, this week in my class, we did the Yale Swallow Protocol. Um, right now, they're working on writing their own oral mech and cranial nerve exams. Like, examples like that of how to, like, step by step, this is how you do this here's the lecture, here are the the high quality materials, that might be a better option. The problem then is, if you have someone who isn't competent in the area and doesn't understand what the slides say, and doesn't understand what has never administered the Yale Swallow Protocol, the class still isn't going to be as good. And I I several colleagues have told me more than once, you really should turn this into a, your class into a curriculum and sell it. I share it with friends and colleagues who want to use my course. I hand them the whole thing. I think we should be doing that for each other because there's not a lot of support in academia. And I think those of us who have high quality stuff could be helping each other out. I have or, seen a, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say I have seen a vast difference, like a vast like there there's a large gap between how people respond to my class 
And right now I shared it with someone in Hawaii who is super competent in dysphagia. It's the first class she's ever taught. And this woman is killing it. She's doing great with my materials. She like messages me all the time. Oh my gosh, this class is amazing. On the flip side, I've I've shared it with someone who also is an amazing clinician, maybe hasn't kept up, isn't an expert in dysphagia, and those students struggled. I, I heard from them often that she just wasn't doing well as well with my curriculum. And my suspicion is she was overworked, didn't have time to like dig into it, hasn't kept up as much as I have, and some of the stuff in my curriculum doesn't make sense. So if that makes sense to you, like even if we have a standardized curriculum, it's on the knowledge of the professor on how that class is going to turn out. Yeah. Even if they have I mean, I was going to say there might be like a hybrid scenario where like both yeah. of what we're saying is possible where instead of you like giving away all your stuff that you've worked really hard on for free, like rewarding people financially. So having a situation where you could apply to contribute your work to the CAA standards and you would be compensated for that and there would be some sort of like vetting process or I don't know but just like almost like a profit share so I teach for MedBridge and that's what it's like when people watch my courses MedBridge makes a lot of money but they give their authors every time there's a view and a completion you get a small percentage of that for as long as you're thing is in their catalog, they continue to pay you. By the way, I would like to interject here that ASHA does not operate like that. Um, If you are using the ASHA Learning Pass, it is like a one-time payout of $500 to those professors. If you even get that, it could be a PhD student who has, who's using it as part of their hours of their PhD. The one-time payout, they sell it for five years and you never see another dime. So anyway, I just wanted to interject that. So there's some clarification there are definitely more ethical CEU companies out there. So if you're looking to purchase something, maybe that to see how they're treating their authors and their educators. And this is, I mean, this is my other issue with academia is it, it's, it's a very abusive system. Like we think of it as this sort of equitable place where everybody's helping each other out and like you're working towards publishing and tenure and whatever, but it's like, the people at the bottom get abused and taken advantage of. And I do think that interjecting like some accountability into that, as far as like making sure people are compensated fairly is important. I think our friend Meredith Harold um, shouts about this a lot too, where right now to get an article, it's like $50. Who's making the money there? That is, it's part of that abusive system where Um, If you are at a university that requires publications, you're doing all of that work for free. Um, You're, you know, yes, it's, it's part of your load, but I can tell you when I was researching, I was, I was working more than 40 hours a week, you know, you get invested in that and then you submit for publication and what's your reward? Oh my gosh, I have a publication. It gets to go on my CV. Meanwhile, the journal is selling it at $50 a pop if someone wants access and the university and the professor and the students in the lab who have volunteered and all of the people who have put the work into producing that outcome don't see a dime. Yeah. All for the sake of being able to say you did it and <laughs> tenure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not, 
I don't think the system is working. And I think there's a new generation of people in academia that are talking very loudly about this. I also want to circle back. This is kind of on topic, but like, I personally don't think that staffing should dictate how programs deliver quality content. And I personally feel like that's the responsibility of the university to figure out just like it's the responsibility of a business owner to figure out staffing, like the product shouldn't suffer because like, Oh, you know, it's too hard to figure out this staffing matrix. Like that's not, that's not the fault of students. And that's, that's something that universities just need to figure out. There's so many problems too, you know, in here, well, I'm sitting in Ohio, but I work in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, we have something like, between the um, fully accredited programs and the programs that are in their probationary period, we have something like 27 or 28 programs. People like me could easily travel between programs and, you know, and I think Penn West is sort of doing that. Like three of our universities in Pennsylvania combined. And now there's three speech programs that are technically all the same department those professors, like my friend, Professor West, is teaching her pediatric dysphagia content now in all three of those universities, right? So um, they're getting more, I guess they're getting more experts to teach their topics. Some of the classes are in person. I don't think she drives to all of the locations. Some of those classes are taught remotely, but they're spreading them out across all three locations. And so that's maybe a better answer that, you know, we have a full-time job where the problem is like, there's the state system in Pennsylvania. They could do that if you're in the state system, but for someone like me, I'm at a private institution. We're not connected to any other institution. Where would I travel to get those full-time hours? So I think there's some answers there across institutions that are connected or in state systems, or maybe are somehow collaborating in a private system. There's definitely answers. And I I agree with you. But for those of us, it's just like PRN, you know, like some people can survive on PRN only, but some people need a full-time job with benefits. How do you make sure that your full-time people have benefits? And so then my question is, is teaching the only value that is there? Like, are there other things that we're not offering or tapping into that are valuable? Like, and I guess this is where there's just so many paradigm shifts that could happen. Like Mm -hmm. if there was a universal curriculum or a universal courses, which again, that has its own issues, but like, what could faculty be contributing to the training program that's not being done that hasn't even been introduced or thought of that's that is really needed and i don't think that teaching is the only thing and i, I there's just there's so many systems in place that have been around yeah. for so long that we don't question them and a lot of these systems are are the way they are because they work well for the faculty kind of like how like to be a member of the board of directors at ASHA, like you have to be in a faculty position because that's the only job that's going to allow you to fly off, fly off to these meetings or right. go to a Zoom meeting every month. Like practicing SLPs don't have the permission from their job or the ability to participate, but we could totally change the system of like what the board of directors looks like, how it votes, who's on it, how they meet, but we don't do that. Instead, we just say, well, 
practicing clinicians just can't be on the board because that's the system that we're in. So I think in all of this, there's so many ways to just, like if we were to just erase it, like erase the whiteboard and just be like, yeah. how would we rebuild this? I think we could come up with some really cool ideas. There but could be some I mean, everything is going to have its problem. Yeah, like if in, in the idea of like a practicing clinician being on the board, right? That clinician to go to that three-day meeting would have to use paid time off. They're losing money. I, I mean, I guess they're still getting paid, but they're losing their valuable vacation time that they could be using to take a mental health. If they even have or, PTO, yeah. Right. <laughs> and so my suggestion would be, we've posted some amazing graphics about all of the money Ash is bringing in. Where the heck is it all going? What if we did it like in academia, we can get a course release. So I've had a course release and I was doing something else instead of teaching a class. For an undergraduate class, a course release for 16 weeks costs $2,700. That's what they pay an adjunct to teach a 16-week undergraduate course. <laughs> Maybe there's some kind of stipend to the employer that, you know, what is what is the work release cost of us taking, like, what is the financial loss? What would you have to pay a PRN? to work while we fly your clinician out here to be a part of this very important work. I don't know. Yeah. I think average PRN is like $50 an hour, give or take 10 bucks. So $50 an hour times, oh, you're my math girl, 50 times an hour times an <laughs> hour work day is what? $450? Did sure. I do that right? I don't know. No idea. <laughs> times three. I don't know. We're looking yeah, at like you do $100, right? That's a drop in the bucket at the, uh, with these numbers that we have published on our social media pages, that if we had one or two practicing clinicians on the board and at the, you know, ASHA was paying that stipend to their employer to bring in someone to cover for them, why not? So, yeah. And I would say too, like local governments, some of them are experimenting with the idea of moving away from this representative democracy to like a true populist democracy. So like there could be a scenario where a board seat quote is actually all of the members who work in SNFs and another board seat is all of the members who work in schools. And like everybody has open access to watch exactly yeah. what happens in these board meetings, not just like little paragraph summaries of like what they want us to know that they talked about, but we all get to be in the room. And then like, we all get to vote on a popular vote. And then whatever is floats up to the top, that's what that board seat is voting on. And so there's stuff like that where I'm like, right. maybe, I mean, I'm sure there's issues with that too, but there are ways to just totally turn things around. I'm Sorry, assuming the answer is no, but these are not open access board meetings, right? Like no one can no. just get on and watch these meetings because no. you and I have been um, sitting with a fun group of people who have been sitting in on the um, interstate compact meetings, which is great. Yeah. They've opened these meetings up for anybody mm -hmm. to attend. So if you're interested, they're always on Zoom. Be careful. They cancel some at last minute. Um, but we've been rotating for quite a number of months, sitting in, taking notes, monitoring. Um, what I don't like is when they then go behind closed doors and we're no longer allowed to listen to what we're talking, what they're talking about. I think that's crap. Um, yeah. But 
our board, our, why aren't our board of directors meetings open access for all of us? Right. It's all about it's transparency. Start and it will yep. keep them accountable. Yep. Okay. So we're writing these letters. Now we want to sit and watch you talk about them. Yep. <laughs> Even if we don't have a say, we want to be able to log in on zoom and yep. watch some kind of live stream to hold you accountable. Because then, you know, maybe we answer you with another round of letters. If that's how you need to hear from us, fine. We'll send another 500 letters. Done. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you think about like local governments televise their city council meetings all the mm -hmm. time. Like that's, that's how you build trust. That's how you build in transparency to the system. Because I think right now SLPs just, they have zero trust in ASHA, zero trust in leadership, zero idea of what goes on in this like mysterious place that none of us can quite visualize or picture but also so, big yeah. daddy asha is not the boss of me <laughs> he's not the boss of me i pay is for big daddy asha to live his life okay so that's what i don't understand too is this like gaslighting and misleading behavior and like all these things you're operating on my money I should be able to see, like, like local government, my freaking tax dollars at work. Why yep. do I have to give you two? Oh, man, I'm getting fired up here. Why do <laughs> I have to give you $225? And by the way, my fees are way more because as a professor, I'm in a SIG. We track my things. I win the ASHA ACE Award every year, right? <laughs> like, why are you taking my $475 every year and not letting me see what's going on in your meeting? Yep. The board of directors that I'm freaking funding. I need to take a yep. breath. <laughs> and we've talked about this privately about how like this is a very old school system. Um, Amy Salerno, she did a great comment on Instagram about like the history of ASHA. And yeah. you want to talk about it? Yeah, so we've talked about that a little bit. So Megan collected all those cool headshots of all the board members, and she's like completely responsible for that post about who has a seat at the table. And that's when we realized like we've got PhDs, very few are practicing. You know, if they are, they're in private practice. And so we started talking about this issue of why does everyone have a PhD? And I said, without really knowing, I make a lot of assumptions, but I will always say I don't know this for sure. It's part of my... Um, analytical uh, trait, personality trait. Um, I said, I guarantee you this is deeply rooted in patriarchy that like when ASHA started, it was a bunch of men who felt important with PhDs and they ran the show. And that over the years, why the heck would they get give that up to someone who is less than? And I think because of the nature of our makeup in speech language pathology with 90 something percent women, you know, 96. women have, what's that? 96%. Thank you. Women now do have seats at the table. If you look at the pictures, there might even be more women than men. Yay. Um, but, you know, I, that probably took time. I would love to see the spread of women versus men over the years since 1925. But Amy shared with us, like, in 1925, you had to have a PhD, right? You had to have been doing like, academic. you couldn't even join if yeah, you, you weren't you couldn't even join ASHA, you had to have the PhD to even be allowed in in the old boys club, right? <laughs> like, and then they they started letting the peasants in with like some <laughs> other name. And, and I think that's just how it has continued. Because even though, though now they're letting 
other genders in, God forbid we give up the seat to people who know less than us. And I would, I say this all the time. You do not have to be smart to get a PhD. All you have to do is be able to persevere and endure a lot of bullshit. And I am thankful for my degree. Again, my mentor, Michelle Bourgeois, was amazing. She mentored me. She loved on me. She taught me everything she knew. But that is not everyone's experience. There were other people on my committee who made me cry all the time. And I just think, I, you know, I did so much crying like, and it was never because of Michelle, but you know, I just persevered and persevered and PS that's why Megan and I are not going away. Perseverance and endurance. <laughs> yep. I'm here for it. Okay. But you know, just because I have a PhD that doesn't make me smarter. And I think sometimes that's why I am uncomfortable with people calling me doctor as like this term of respect. All I did was go to college for 13 years. I don't like, what did you do? Like, did you have cancer? Did you like endure some like trauma that I'll never know? Like we all just endure and persevere different things. And I think we have a lot of very smart, well-qualified clinicians in this field who would kill it at the table, who would do better than me. Like I tell Megan this every day, your words are so much better than mine for these social media posts. You're the, or you need to, you need to word this response because I'm definitely going to mess it up. Um, you know, I, I bring other things to the table and I just think excluding people with master's degrees because they're le- perceived as less than is asinine. Yeah. And I would say you're, that's a very minority view. And I would also say that you put yourself in a position of vulnerability and being seen as less than yourself when you talk like that. And when you share that perspective and when you treat people like that, when you're in a crowd of your upper level people, (laughs) I my colleagues friends and it's interesting too Megan because I um I've been paying attention to the pushback because you know we're gonna get pushback with this movement I see a lot of silence um and I can't judge this from from, from your colleagues I see a lot of silence from my colleagues um I'm getting a lot of messages from people with PhDs or people in higher level positions like on state association boards or like vendors of well-known products um, who are just there to educate and aren't permitted to take a public stance on anything. I Those messages probably are the ones personally that I have gotten the most that have been, hey, what you and Megan are doing is super great. It's about time someone spoke up. I'm sorry I can't publicly join this movement, but I want to encourage you from behind the scenes. I'm getting so many of those. But it has been surprising to me, the people I have not heard from, or the people who have pushed back on us publicly have mostly been people with PhDs. Yeah. Yeah. And like, to share more of my personal story, like I've said before, this is a second career for me. I went back to school later in life. Before that, I was a science communication education specialist. So I traveled all over the world. I worked mostly with geoscientists to communicate their research projects, which were always really fascinating. I spent a lot of time in different countries, living in different countries. And I spent a lot of time in Antarctica, working with people and spending time with all kinds of 
diverse people of all walks of life who had all this different life experience, different languages, different cultures. And so when I went to grad school, I had had all this life experience and I could just, I felt like they could smell that on me and they made it their mission to like beat that out of me, to like beat me down (laughs) so that I knew that I wasn't worth anything and that only the people in academia and only the people who were teaching me actually had any valuable life experience or anything to contribute to the field. And I think this is why we have such a huge diversity issue. Like we have almost no diversity in the field because if somebody like me, who's a woman, who's white, who goes into a grad program and even like, I don't feel like I fit in and I feel like my life experience is problematic for the program and problematic for my grad school education. Like how in the world is anybody who is not female or not white supposed to survive in this environment? And then, and then you top that with like this, this thing of like, well, we can't talk openly about any of these issues, <laughs> like people of power just stay silent about all of it from racism, classism, homophobia, how we teach, how we train, how we measure competencies. Like none of the issues are being talked about because there's this sort of agreed upon contract of silence. And like there's the people who are allowed to say things and people who are not. And yeah, I think I think that's like the crux so much of this issue is like, who's allowed to have a voice in this field? Very few people. And I mean, even the silencing among, amongst each other, like it, the, the university that I just left, man, the program director did not like me. He was my best friend until he realized I wasn't following his agenda. And mm-hmm. I do things differently. And he actively sought to shut me down. He actively shot is actively attempted to shut me up, you know, would, would be conniving. And just like the things that went on were insane. We're supposed to be autonomous in academia, just like speech language pathologists are autonomous. You know, we get to diagnose and treat and do what we want uh, within reason and within our scope of practice. But um, we're supposed to have freedom in academia to teach and educate how we want to. And it, you know, he didn't like my agenda and that was fine. That is, I, I want to say too, that is not my experience where I'm at now. My Dean is fully supportive. Um, at the end of last year, he and I had a, a meeting where he did say, you're not going to find censorship here. And if you find problems in your field that you feel need to be addressed, you're not going to find censorship from us. And I almost cried because to hear that wow. from a colleague, especially a colleague who's technically my boss just meant so much that I have, you know, maybe that it isn't the case everywhere. I might not be able to sit here and yell at you on this podcast (laughs) with my opinions if I was working at a university that didn't want me to speak out. And I am hearing from colleagues who can't sit here and do this, you know, that I'm so lucky that I have the freedom to say what I want. And I'm not being shut down by colleagues that, you know, that I'm not worried about losing my job because I'm 
speaking out about change. So that's, that's really nice. But like that inter silencing, like you're not on my agenda. So shut the F up. Mm. Mm-hmm. Nope, I'll just quit. Find, find yourself a new dysphagia professor. Peace out. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. And it starts as students because there's that power dynamic where it's like, if I do speak up and I do say something, I might not graduate. I might not get this degree. And then it becomes supervisor abuse and bullying. And it's like, if I speak up, they're not going to pass me. I'm not going to get my C's. And then it's, and then it leads into the situation we have now where so many employers are abusing SLPs because the system is set up (laughs) to allow that abuse. And the only way the system's going to stop operating that way is if we start changing the rules, which is what we're going to talk about. Before we do that, do we want to talk about student placements? Because I think this is sure. an important sure. topic. And, and what I'm looking up right now, too, is I want to kind of give a shout out with this. It goes along with what you just said, but it will be a nice transition to what you just asked about. Um, I want to shout out the Speech Uncensored podcast, episode 142 with um, Dr. Jordan Hazelwood. The name of that episode is The One Thing, How to Be Wrong the Right way. Um, I make all of my students not make them, I assign them. So I guess I am making them because they get a grade for it. Um, If they'd like an A, they have to listen to it and then write a personal reflection about what they've learned and kind of do some introspective work about how they learn and how they respond to being wrong. Um, I it it talks a lot about um, interactions with CIs and professors that a lot of times students are afraid to be wrong. And so even if they're not understanding something in a lecture or they're not understanding something that a supervisor or a clinical instructor or a mentor is telling them, quite often they will just shake their head yes and move along because they're afraid to be wrong or because of what you said, you know, they've been wrong before or they've spoken up about their opinions and then they get shut down, right? And I mm-hmm. I think that, uh, you know, that's why I, this is the first class they have with me at the beginning of their program. I start them out with this and and I, I encourage them, like, as you go through this program, if you're confused, if you don't understand something, the likelihood that some the person sitting next to you doesn't understand is pretty high. And so you should speak up, ask the questions, or if you're asked a question and you don't know the answer, I I think Dr. Hazelwood recommends like saying something like, I'm not sure, let me hold some space for for that and come back, you know, can we come back to it? Or there's just a lot of good suggestions there for the dynamic with clinical instructors and professors and and learning. Um, There is a fine line, and I think this, this goes for any employment, sometimes students can be downright like disrespectful and we never yep. want to disrespect our our colleagues our coworkers our superiors you know that you do have to be careful about not crossing the line where if you have an opinion or you don't agree with something that your professor is doing um you do want to remain respectful and and have a, a respectful conversation um yeah it but, goes both ways we can't just yeah. demand respect from yeah. Superiors and not give it back. So I, if anybody loves a good podcast, I'd, I'd go check that one out with Leanne and Dr. Hazelwood. Um, it's great. I can't say enough good things about it. Um, so yeah, let's talk about Can like, I, and mentorship. Oh, before we do that, I just have one more thought about like the power dynamic situation and the 
the problem that you you all face with dealing with feedback that the course is too hard or whatever. I I think when we look at measuring learning and like tests and assessments and grades, the system right now is set up to make sure that the students are learning, Mm -hmm. but we don't have a lot of great systems in place to make sure that the teacher is teaching other than did you teach it in a way that worked for me, like the feedback forms. And that's where like, I think universal competency standards are so important because then you can measure, did the student learn the universal competency standards? Right. And did the teacher teach the universal competency standards rather than like, did you like how it was taught? I mean, that's important too. I'm getting like right bumbled up in my and, thought process here, but there has to be some a better system for both things to be measured. And the system is so wild too. Like you might not even know this, but we have to at the end of a program, we sign off on their competency, right? Like our program coordinator, our program director signs off on their competency so they can go on to get licensed. Well, competency is measured at like 80% or more. And competency across a program varies wildly, even with each class. So me, as the instructor, I need to make sure that my students are competent in what I'm teaching, and that competency standard is 80%. And so I can decide what on my syllabus is measuring competency. Is it the final? Is it the midterm in the final? Is it a certain assignment? (laughs) And if if the student doesn't earn 80% or higher on that competency measure, then they have to formally remediate. And so that is up to the the professor to decide how competency is being measured in that course. And as you can imagine from professor to professor to professor, that that changes. I, I just flat out say in my class, you earn 80% on everything or you remediate. And I give a class every week or I give a quiz every week in every class because of spaced retrieval, spaced practice helps you learn, right? Um, And and so sometimes, you know, the people are getting seven out of tens, they're remediating. And and my remediation is not take it again because I'm not an idiot. You're taking screenshots. You're 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 just guessing. (laughs) Come on. I wasn't, I used to sleep through my classes. I wasn't (laughs) yesterday. Um, no, my remediation is if you have to remediate, you're going to tell me why your answer was wrong. And then you're going to dig in and you're going to find the right answer. And you're going to tell me why that answer was right. So I, for competency's sake, to me, that's a better standard than take it again and take it again and take it again until you have 80%. What are we teaching there? But that's, that's a method that many educators use is if you get an 80% or if you get a 70%, do it again until you get an 80. Well, it's easy. Competency in my classes. Yeah. I mean, what you're doing takes more thought process. You've actually done the work to figure out like some pedagogy and like how people learn best and like you put thought into it, but, and I'm not saying that people you know, don't care. I think a lot of people right, just no, don't have no. time or they don't take the time yeah. or they don't prioritize it. They don't understand that there's research yeah. around. Or they're new. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been teaching since 2009. 
you know, I am not the professor. Sometimes I apologize to my first round of grad students, like, I, or somebody who's listening to us said, I had you in neuro at, with my first job, like my first full-time <laughs> job. And I, that class was awful. I feel horrible <laughs> for those students. And I told her, I'm, I said, I'm so sorry you had to endure me. <laughs> but like, you had no resources. It's just like, right. here, teach. Yes. Without any training, without right. any structure, without any anything. Like we're not taught surprise. You can do it. PhDs aren't taught to teach. PhDs are taught to research. A PhD is a research degree. It is not a clinician degree. It is not a teaching degree. There is no class in pedagogy. I'm lucky because I got because I had experience across the lifespan. Um, when I started my doctoral program, they used me for teaching. I taught intro. I loved it. So I got a lot of practice before I had my first full-time job. But some people are working in the a lab their entire time. They don't have any teaching experience at all. And then they get their first full-time job and boom, you've got a 12 load and research yep. in there too, right? Like a tw- so and again, a 12 load four classes. Yeah. So and you have to develop those classes. So you're just trying to survive. Like I used to sit up until four in the morning that first year developing my classes because yeah. no one gives you resources. You're on your own. It's awful. Yeah. Anyway, it's not working I, for anybody. I need, I need so when you one. so you're also responsible for placing students. Yes. So what or, are some of the biggest or have just have done so across multiple institutions in multiple ways? Okay. So what was your question? How does it go? Like, what are some of the challenges okay. that you so face? Because I think as students, people are like, oh, you just, you have placements and you match those placements and it's easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's the hardest job out there, I think. I, From what I've seen, there appears to be a lot of turnover in our field for people who are holding these positions of externship coordinator. I know the last university that I left, the person who replaced me quit within weeks. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's not an easy job. It's really hard. And I think students especially don't understand what goes into it. So um, it's, it's nice. And it's a challenge when you let your student go anywhere in the country for their externship placements, which is nice because you have a broader um, choice of where students can get their clinical experiences. But it's also hard. Um So when a student gets a placement, you first have to make sure that the location can take a student. So if they only have PRN, if they have a CF, or if the CF has not had nine months of full-time experience at the completion of the CF, they do not qualify to host a student. So that's first things first. The location, so let's say, Megan, you're my student and you want to go to ABC school and XYZ hospital. I have to first start making phone calls, make, sending an email is useless. I I almost never am able to make a clinical placement with an email. I have to call. And that means I have to call when that clinician is sitting in the room to answer the phone. <laughs> How about time zones? I live in Ohio. You live in California, maybe. And you want to go to ABC school in California when I'm working at 8 a.m. That's five o'clock your time. So if, if you check in at eight, that's noon my time. I might be teaching a class. So it's very, from the beginning, very careful coordination of when you're making that phone call. If you're leaving messages, you have to get these people to call you back. It is awful. It is 
awful getting people to call you back. That's the first thing. Okay, then you connect. Megan, I got I got a hold of the special ed coordinator at ABC school. Now she's going to talk to the speech pathologist to see if she even wants a student. So more weeks go by. I follow up 17 times. Finally, I hear, okay, in best case scenario, Susie Q at ABC school will take your student, Megan. Then I have to get a contract. And that is when lawyers start talking. And when you're going across state lines, it can take months and months and months. And you're just like biting your nails because maybe you're doing this a year in advance and you're like six weeks before the placement and there's still no contract. And and so sometimes it happens quickly, sometimes not. And I have had placements fall through weeks, days before placements have started because the lawyers can't come to to terms. Every state has different like indemnity laws and things like that. Um, So the contract is the hardest part. You know, once, once you get the phone call and you get the yes, then you need the contract. Um, So that, that all makes it very difficult, but then a lot of these places have rules. So some people most places now these days, they will not talk to a student. So universities complain or the students complain because they're not allowed to find their own placement. Well, most places don't want to hear from the students because you can imagine like our university is in a very rural part of Pennsylvania. There's only so many nursing homes. There's one hospital. Can you imagine if our entire cohort of 20 all called the same hospital to say, hey, can you take me as your student? So these coordinators and these speech pathologists only want to talk to the university representative. So that's often why that rule is in place, simply because our um, our our sites have requested we only want to do this with you. A lot of places will want to interview. So, you know, they have one time a year or two times a year where they will interview 20 students and then maybe they're taking two or three. Students often want to wait to see maybe they go on five interviews and they want to wait and pick the best. Maybe they'll get more than one offer. That can't happen. As soon as there's an offer, you have to take it. And because what if that's the only yes you get? Like you could have you could have interviewed for five positions we need to get you one, right? We need So you should only be interviewing at places you're willing to go if that's something you have to do. Um, sometimes students don't understand that. So when you have to place, you know, when I took over full-time um, of our, I, I was doing externship coordination and actually clinical coordination for ev- our entire distance program at a former university that I was at. We had 66 students um, three cohorts. They all did five rotations all over the country. And I took over that job April of 2020. Mm -hmm. I have legitimate like PTSD from it, but you know, if someone said yes, you're going there at at this point, you are going, we don't have a choice. So it's so hard because there's so many moving parts. Um, and then you always run the risk of not knowing what kind of clinician you're sending your student to. And that is my biggest fear and also my biggest beef with my colleagues who don't listen to students. So 
I always took feedback from my students very, very seriously. So if someone said, Dr. Benegas, this isn't a great placement. I'm not learning the things that you taught in class. I'm learning the opposite. You know, I, one time somebody called me from her hospital. It was, it was like three o'clock or two o'clock and she was crying and she's like, Dr. Benegas, I don't think I'm learning what I'm supposed to learn here. And I said, are you in the building? And she was like, yes. And I said, okay we're going to hang up the phone and I want you to call me back when you get home. You know, so ultimately that student stayed and it was a conversation of you're just, you know, you're, you're learning what not to do in your practice. But do you think I ever sent a student to that location again? Absolutely not. And so that, but that, me- I'll just say that's uncommon because there's such a yeah. shortage of supervisors yeah. that fa- right. faculty will just look the other way because they, right. They, right. because, they have 5 million phone calls to make and they just want to get it done. Yep. And because it's such a hard job that, you know, it it's just unethical to me. If we have students saying this is not a good placement, students are not three years old. These are grown adults that we are about to hand master's degrees to. And yes, sometimes students complain, but to me, their feedback is very valuable and they're the ones in those settings. So again, I've only ever pulled someone from a placement one time and it was bad enough that it had to happen. Um, But you you have the conversation, let's debrief about the things that you think you're not learning correctly. Let's, Let's talk about how you could have done this differently or how that clinical instructor could have done this differently. Um, and let's get you through it. But then like that feedback is so valuable. And because the job is so hard of the clinical externship coordinator, they just, you know, it's, they just keep sending students there and it's just. Yeah. And it was interesting for me because we've been talking about this and I think I really had no idea what a mess it was. And because my experience was I didn't trust that I would get placed in a good spot because there was there was a lot of favoritism in my program I was not on the favorite list so like I applied to an internship at Madonna Rehab Hospital and I'm learning like that's a unique thing that they do like not a lot of facilities have an application program like that and then like I called the Pine Ridge First Nation Reservation and I was like do you take students and they're like no we've never done that before but we're open to it so I was just wanting that experience on a reservation but like I definitely was one of those students that was calling and doing it on my own (laughs) which I in hindsight maybe that was frustrating for them I mean or maybe I made it easier for them I don't know but like why isn't there a national clearing list yeah clearing house yeah why and then like the residency program for doctors is a disaster but like at least there's a system in place. <laughs> what what do you think or what would you wish for the field as far as a system that I think should be in place to help with this? I think it's an excellent idea. I was at a university teaching adjunct that has a hundred students or more at any given time that needs to be placed in a big urban area. And they were looking at creating something like that locally. I don't know if it ever happened, but I think you know, like PA, nursing, I think they all have systems like that, where you're, you know, you pay, the university pays for that, and then the placements are made. Um, 
I think there would there would need to be a good vetting process. And again, sometimes students do complain like, oh, she made me work. She made me read these articles. My friend didn't have to do that. <laughs> so like digging through like, is this a good CI or not would be really hard. Yeah. Um, but having that pool of people where we just pay a fee and our students get assigned would be great. I mean, when I was placing those 66 students all over the country during COVID, boy, would I have liked to pay it. I would have paid into that personally to get some help. <laughs> so I do think that that's a great idea. The other thing that we bump into, I've, I've got a local clinician. I've been using her for years. She's become a personal friend. She's an alumni of where I'm teaching now. So that's even cooler. But many years ago, I sent her a student who was not good. And I feel really bad. I didn't know. But you know, she would be making TikToks in the middle of the day and burnt my friend out so badly that she came back and said, I need a break. I can't take your student next semester. That left me three weeks to find a placement. And so sometimes there's crappy students too, right? Like she is an amazing CI. My students like bring away so much from that placement. But the previous student was just so crappy that we have these CIs who aren't being paid, who are volunteering their time, who take students semester after semester after semester, that students have to hold up their end of the bargain too, because yep. they're ruining it for everybody else. Yeah. You know, it's, it's and, uh, there's so many parts to this. Yeah. I think another part, and this is my personal opinion, is that the CAA is accrediting too many universities mm -hmm. and they're mm -hmm. accrediting too many universities in the same region and they don't have anything, any safeguards in place to prevent that. And so they're just like taking in the fees, approving, approving, approving. They're not looking at how many supervisors are realistically available in this mm -hmm. area and yeah. like what can actually be supported. Yeah. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on the other side of the state, man, are they inundated right now. One program was a candidacy program, had to close because they couldn't find enough faculty, first of all. Um, oh. But then, like, I can't imagine, you know, that's where I used to teach. That was one of my first full-time jobs out in that area. Um, and we were, like, one of the I, – I, there were a couple programs back then, but now there's – there are so many and I just can't imagine I've, I've had to try to find placements for students out there before. And I end up calling alumni that I used to have like, Hey, can you take my student? Who do you know? Um, so that personal connection is always helpful. The other thing too, is when you send students all over the country, sometimes clinicians will say yes. And this comes back to this, um, this contract thing the institution will say no because it is because it is not worth them paying their lawyer to establish a contract for a one-time use. Wow. So I've bumped into that a lot too with people all over the country, especially where there's bottlenecked, um, like North Carolina, I think is one of those places um, where I, or it might be South Carolina. I think it's North Carolina or no, Atlanta. It was in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. I think there's like three universities all right there and they can't even accommodate all of those local clinicians. And they, they straight said to me, our, our institutions are not willing to establish new contracts because we already have enough students to accommodate in this area. 
And the only way your student will find a placement is if she drives an hour or more out of the city. Wow. Because those institutions just weren't willing to establish contracts for one-time use because that costs that institution money to pay that lawyer to negotiate that yeah. contract. And I completely get it. It's not fair, especially if that's, you know, my student, that's where her family lived. She was going home to live. Right. And she's paying thousands of dollars for those credit hours, right. which again, it's like the, you can't just because there's limitations for the university doesn't mean that students deserve less or shouldn't right. get what they're paying and for. And she's going to be a member of that community when she graduates. If she yeah. could work PRN at those hospitals or get hired at those nursing homes. That's where she's going. That's why she's graduated now. That's where she lives, you know, but it's so frustrating. It's so hard. Mad respect yeah. to all of you listening who do it and are like, and so that's, I've gotten some feedback on that too, where we've talked about this issue on other podcasts that if people start letting their C's go, it's going to really narrow the pool of people who can take our students. And that's why this all has to happen. It has to happen in a very systematic order. We need the CCC to be modified, to be made optional, to go away, or, mm -hmm. you know, that this, that this restriction that to get the CCC, you have to be supervised by someone with a CCC that has to go away. Then we can start letting our C's go. Then we won't, because we don't want students to suffer even more. Please don't think that right. They are, our purpose here is to just blow everything up. You know, the, there is some thought into this. We need to take these steps. Um, but yeah, I, I've gotten feedback from, from people who do this job, who have concerns about what we're saying because they know how it's going to affect them as yeah. an externship coordinator. Yeah. And just one more thought on this. You had mentioned the AOTA has stopped accrediting oh, yeah. programs because they... Yeah, yeah have the same issue, but they're yeah. actually doing something about yeah. it. It's like yes, they're they stopping everything. Yeah. So um, our, my program that I'm working in now is the first graduate program at our institution. They were actively looking at adding occupational therapy. And they just told us in our faculty meeting that um, AOTA has halted um, taking on applicants and that there is such a large applicant pool and that there are so many people like going through the system or not people, but programs going through the system right now that they have, they're halting the process. They're not accepting any more applications. And I believe we were told or they were told that for us to see any kind of return on investment, because it does cost a lot of money to start a new academic program, it would be seven years or more before we could even start the program and start seeing a return on investment with students. So um, good for AOTA, like, because ASHA just, you know, the CAA just takes the money and takes the money and takes the money without any thought of how many there are of us to teach in these programs. Again, probably less than 2000 and all of these requirements to get these hours for these students with nowhere to send them. Yeah. And I think just to interject here too, like, I think a lot of SLPs are like, God, like these people are making these decisions based on money and based on power. And that I think there's some truth to that. And then there's also truth to the fact that the left hand has no idea what the left pinky is doing. Like these, this system is so inefficient 
There's so much miscommunication. There's so much lack of institutional knowledge because these boards turn over all the time that like people are just kind of like going along with like the massive current of ASHA and the CAA and like the people who are on these boards don't have the time or the perspectives like you and I do to just stop and be like, this isn't working. How could we do it different? And if they are questioning those things, there's so much pushback from the existing system that those, that conversation just gets lost. And yeah. so I think that's what Fix SLP is here for is like, we're just going to be persistent. We're going to be loud. We're going to put language and articulate what the problems are. And eventually, like if enough people hear that at the right time, there's going to be change because there just hasn't been that sort of consistent pushback to the existing systems. And so things just carry on as they do mm-hmm. because the the energy and the time needed to change it isn't going to happen with the, the way it currently is. So I know we're running out of time and we're going over an hour. I think like all of this is circling around this idea that the CCC is not evidence-based. It does not, it's not tied to any universal competency standards. If someone can afford to pay $225 every year, they can maintain their label of competency, even if they haven't touched a client in 10 years. Yeah, we're getting so, so many messages. I've kept my CCC for the last 10 years as a backup plan or just in case. Like, oh my gosh, like, what? Yeah. There needs to be a, a different process yeah. here. Yeah. And so that's a thread of the conversation we're having is like, how can we actually have measurable, clear, evidence based? competency standards established by the CAA, how can those be tied into um, comparing grad school competencies to real world competencies? But the issue that we're focused on right now is, is the fact that we live in a reality where we have to keep paying for the certification that doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. So just so everybody knows, the next step that we're taking is to reach out and talk to some people who have experience with changing legislation. So like, how do we introduce bills that would remove language about the CCC from state licensing boards, as well as individual state Medicaid programs? Because if we can remove that language, then that frees up SLPs to really decide if they wanna pay for the CCC and then it's just a matter of having conversations with employers. And for people who are listening to this, like, oh, my God, like, you can't just willy-nilly, like, you can't just get rid of this certification that ties us all together. Again, we would say there's no evidence that supports the C's. So really, it's incredibly unethical to continue to support this certification because it's doing harm to consumers, first and foremost, who believe that having the certification means something when it really doesn't. And it's doing harm to our field because it's just kind of a joke at this point. And and there's no universal standards that we're all held to. And it's hurting individual SLPs because it's a financial burden on top of state licensing fees, on top of continuing education, all of these things that we have to continue to maintain in order to have the right to practice. 
Um, and again, it's it's not actually ensuring competency. So why are we all supporting it? So that's we what all, Jeanette and I are working on. <laughs> and I, I mean, look out into your own SLP community. We all have that SLP who is as dumb as a box of rocks. Like, what are you doing? And why are you doing? Why are you swiping that frozen thing on the back of someone's mouth? I I don't know. Or, you know, just I'm so far out of peds at this point, I can't even give a funny example. But, you know, why does why we hold the same state license? And we assumably have both paid for this same certificate, but one of us is competent and one, one of us is not. And here's what I see too, like, even putting this back, Megan, to our other SLPs pockets podcast, sometimes those people who aren't competent are also the yes men and yes women who will just take jobs because it's a job and it hurts. It also hurts the rest of us for $20 an hour. Yeah. Yeah. They don't know better to say, no, I have to have an instrumental exam to to treat pharyngeal dysphagia. No, this workload in my school is too high. No, 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 no. They're like, sure, I can treat swallowing without an instrumental exam. Let me just, and that's what's hurting the rest of us who are trying to make a difference. And it, some of that boils, not always, but some of that boils down to competency. They're just not competent enough to know better. And it's hurting the system. Oh yeah. And need everyone out. needs to be aware so- that ASHA is like, they sent out a survey about clinical specialty certifications. And the best way that I'm getting a read on this is they want to start a program that's pretty much like the CE provider platform. So I'm an ASHA CE provider. I pay a $900 fee every year or whatever. And then I submit all my courses through ASHA. And then I report who completes the CEUs. But ASHA isn't looking at the quality of my courses at all, at all. Like there's a box that I check that says, yes, this course has been evaluated for quality of content or whatever, but they don't. I mean, I could publish any course as an ASHA CEU and it would not guarantee quality. And it seems like they're doing the same thing with clinical specialty certifications where people are going to be able to apply to provide a clinical specialty certification with ASHA's stamp of approval. And I'm willing to bet there's not going to be a vetting process for quality. Um, And so that's what we have to be concerned about is like, not only do we have the CCC that's completely bullshit that doesn't actually measure anything, but now they're going to be introducing clinical specialty certifications and they don't have a track record of like doing anything with any evidence base. So we're all going to get pigeonholed into paying more and more and more and more and more money. And they're going to try to like, be like, okay, if you don't have this clinical specialty certification, you can't work in this area. And like, yes, we need to have conversations about who can work where and what competencies they need to demonstrate and how those competencies are demonstrated. But like, that is not the solution. ASHA clinical specialty certificates are not the solution. It's going to hurt us. It is going to hurt us. This is, this is another podcast and I have some guests some guests in mind or a guest in mind that we can invite to have this conversation with us. But no, that is not the answer. It is not. It, it will ruin us. I think yeah. you you don't have enough money now. Wait till that starts. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> and I mean, I will continue to say, and this is my personal opinion. Why isn't the degree enough? Like why can the degree not be good enough? And I know 
yes, like there's no way we can teach everything that every SLP needs to know in a degree, but I think we can teach enough and we can get really clear on how we're spending our time and how we're spending students' money to teach what they need to know, like what they actually need to know and teach it really well so that the degree is enough for an entry-level position and we're not having to pile on all this extra stuff that we all have to pay for to prove that we're competent. But again, that doesn't dismiss the idea that we shouldn't have specialty something, whether that's a state license or certification or something, but that's a conversation for another day. And just, just to point out here too, like I've heard this a couple of times. Well, I'm not anti-ASHA. This is not an anti-ASHA movement or an anti-ASHA conversation. Yes, Megan and I get very frustrated. You, I mean, you heard that out of my tone of voice today. Um, we're wanting to take what is there and make it better. And this is something that everyone can get behind, whether you like ASHA or not, because I think we can all agree that the system is not working. Part of the reason it's not working is because we have grown exponentially since 1925, right? When when the boys, the old boys club and the ivory tower and their little PhDs and they're smoking their cigars, like I have this whole picture in my head. <laughs> Coming there on their horse and buggy. I don't know. Did they have those? They have beagles? I don't know, they probably. Were they shooting birds? <laughs> Who knows? Anyway, you know, we've come, we treat so many more things since, yep. since that time that, you know, what worked a hundred years ago just doesn't work now. And it's okay to say that we've changed. You know, we change our style of clothing every decade. We change the type of music we listen to all the time. It can be the same for our field. And I've said this before, we need to be allowed to change. We can't be silenced. We have to speak up. And that doesn't mean we don't like ASHA. It means we need to grow. Yeah. And we've joked about we're going to be calling each other if we get in the, the nursing privilege home of living long enough with our live or our nursing homes, you know, complaining about all these young people who want to change things. And like, yes. that's just how it is. Like change is constant. How it was back in the twenties when we, <laughs> when we made all these changes that why do they want a certification it? now? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yes, a hundred years from now, the things that Megan and I are yelling and screaming about and that all of you are yelling and screaming about won't be relevant anymore. You know, a hundred years from now, these are going to be AI conversations, right? Or something even <laughs> oh, bigger God. than that, that, you know, we haven't even broached that topic yet, but you know, like what we're, they, they should change and they should be allowed to do it. And that's, yep. that's what we're saying. We might yell it. Well, Megan doesn't yell. I, I might yell it. <laughs> Megan will make some kind of beautiful graphic and post about it. <laughs> and then I'll yell. Okay. So the board meeting is next Wednesday through Friday. On Wednesday, October 25th, we will be recording a podcast episode with Dr. Treasure Williams-Wood, who, like I said, is the member at large. So she will have been in the room while it happened, and she can tell us about the system, how it works, uh, how the meeting went, um, what we can expect. And like her whole job is to basically communicate to the board the concerns of the members. So she... The three of us will be having a really great conversation. So tune in for that. And anything else, Jeanette? 
I don't think so. I mean, no one else wants to hear me yell right now. They need a full <laughs> week hiatus before I give any more strong Italian opinions. <laughs> I love it. Thank you for your strong opinions. And thank you for being somebody who can hold your own in the academic space and also provide some inspiration for others to join in the conversation because we need those voices to be talking with us, even if you disagree, like it, it yeah. needs to be transparent. It needs to be open. We can't be having this, like, I can't say anything. Like we can all say, we can all talk. We all have yeah. a right to freedom of speech and we all need to be hearing the different experiences. Cause I've learned so much from you about all of the complexities of, um, the academic world. And that's really helped me put some perspective into everything. So thank you. Yeah. Sure. All right. All right. So I thank you. See everybody in a week. Thanks for fixing it. Bye. Bye.